Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and a warm welcome to Money Talk for Wednesday the 8th of November. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. This is Peter Lewis with today's business and finance headlines. The Reserve Bank of Australia has raised interest rates for the first time in five months to combat persistent inflation. The bank opted to increase interest rates by 25 basis points to a 12-year high of 4.35%, ending a four-meeting pause. Tuesday's move marks the 13th rate rise since May 2022, as inflation proved more persistent than expected a few months ago due to a further rise in prices of services. An official said they see an increased risk that inflation will stay higher for longer. China's imports expanded for the first time since February, despite weaker overall trade activity in 2023. Imports into China unexpectedly rose by 3% year-on-year, beating market consensus of a 4.8% drop and reversing from a 6.2% drop in September. Exports, however, dropped by a worse-than-expected 6.4% over the same period. That's the sixth consecutive month of declines. The IMF has raised its forecast for China's economic growth, citing stronger policy support from Beijing. The fund said China's GDP would grow 5.4% in 2023, upgrading its previous forecast of 5%. For next year, the growth forecast was revised up from 4.2% to 4.6%. But the IMF cautioned that weakness in the property sector and subdued external demand would persist. Chinese regulators used a gathering of top banking executives in Hong Kong to push back against investor gloom over the country. Speaking at the HKMA's second annual Global Financial Leaders Investment Summit, the People's Bank of China Deputy Governor Zhang Qingxiong said he was not worried about the mainland economy because some debt risks will recede and the property market has long-term potential. Mr Zhang said China's local government debt is a structural issue and the risks to certain regions will recede gradually. He called the difficulties facing the housing sector natural selection and a market clearing process as supply and demand shifted following years of rapid growth in the industry. On today's programme, I'm joined by Angie Ronfal, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Louisa Fogg, China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. And if you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'm also on Facebook, Peter Lewis Money Talk is the page. And on X, I'm at Money Talk R3. On Wall Street Tuesday, the S&P 500 and Nasdaq Composite notched their longest winning streak in nearly two years. The S&P 500 added a third of a percent to close at 4,378. The benchmark index rose for a seventh consecutive day for the first time since its eight-day win streak reached in November 2021. The Dow was the underperformer out of the main indices, rising 0.2% to end the day at 34,153. The Nasdaq Composite jumped 0.9% to end at 13,640. The Nasdaq posted eight days of wins for the first time since an 11-day streak ended in November 2021. The tech sector was the top performer, while energy was the laggard. Treasuries were bid across the curve, with the long end outperforming. The yield on the 10-year Treasury notes dropped 8 basis points to 4.57%. The 2-year yield was down 3 basis points at 4.91%. 
Oil prices retreated Tuesday after data showed Chinese exports fell 6.4% in October from a year ago. Front-month Brent futures hit a two-and-a-half-month low, slumping 4.2% to $81.61 a barrel and reversing all the gains made since Hamas attacked Israel on October the 7th. The dollar index was up a third of a percent to trade at 105.54 on Tuesday. That's the second consecutive day of gains and moving further away from two and a half month lows touched last week. The Japanese yen was 0.2% weaker against the dollar at 150.4. The Chinese yuan was 0.1% weaker at 7.2788 renminbi in Shanghai after trade data showed exports fell more than expected. Asian equity markets fell on Tuesday. South Korea's Cosby tumbled 2.3%, having gained 5.7% on Monday after, after the financial regulator banned short selling until the end of June 2024. Hong Kong shares, they tumbled 296 points or 1.7% to 17,670 on Tuesday, falling for the first session in four and retreating from a three-week high notched the day before. The Shanghai Composites was unchanged at 3,048. Looks like the Hang Seng's also going to open unchanged this morning at around about 17,670. And just a reminder, you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. We're halfway through the week already. Let's welcome our regular Wednesday correspondent, Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Morning to you, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also joining us, Louisa Falk, China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore. Morning, Louisa. Morning, Peter. China's imports expanded for the first time since February. Despite weaker overall trade activity in 2023, imports into China unexpectedly rose by 3% year-on-year to $218.3 billion in October. That beat market estimates of a 4.8% drop. It also reversed a 6.2% drop seen in September. However, China's imports from the US were down by 3.7%. Uh, 3.7% in October versus the year ago period. China's imports from the European Union rose by more than 5%, while those from the Southeast Asian nations grew by 10.2%. Exports dropped 6.4% over the same period. That's the sixth consecutive month of declines. And that's faster than a 6.2% fall seen in the previous month. Exports to the US dropped by more than 8%. And China's trade surplus in October narrowed sharply to 56.5 US dollars. That's down from 82.35 billion a year ago. Enzio, what, what's your thoughts? Mixed picture here, isn't it? Um, what's it's, your, what's I it think it's us? displacement of trade flows. I think what's going on is very much my old chestnut, the multinationals, that are leaving um, the China as we know very well, very much so, more so than the Europeans and the Southeast Asians. And so actually, if anything, more multinational activities going into Southeast Asia. And so that would, that drop in U.S. multinational activity in China would certainly argue for less exports of these multinationals from China back to the U.S., etc. Um, then, of course, you've got the trade enmity um, the whole sort of fight between America, again, America and, and, and China about trade um, patterns and trade abilities. And so I think those two things have really caused the drop in the U.S. Um, in, in, in the sales to America. And again, I think that also this displacement is what's then pushing the exports um, to Europe and 
yeah, exports to Europe and imports from Europe and also those of the Southeast Asian because again you have more Southeast Asian companies mm -hmm. investing in, in getting more multinational investment themselves. So you're saying we're seeing really a shifting of trade flows shifting, uh, right, around the world. Shifting, yes, yes. Uh, Louisa, what are you seeing from this data? Um, I, I think two things worth highlighting. First of all, is uh, if you look at from a destination perspective, across the board, uh, for export data has been weakened. So uh, it's not just the US. So that's mm. uh, one thing. Secondly, um, I think uh, th the other thing that to watch out for, uh, similar to what Anjo mentioned, is the we have been talking about, or, or the market has been talking about the shift of global supply chain. Mm. Um, I think this is probably somewhat um, much more structural. Uh, in terms of categories, lastly, uh, I think uh, do note that from the export data, uh, mobile phones uh, did pick up. Um, so I think it's an uh, it's, uh, argument of, first of all, global growth, because across the destination has weakened. And secondly, uh, how does these ongoing supply chain relocation or realignment is going to have and whether from a category perspective, whether the pickup in mobile phone uh, could actually have somewhat a offsetting impact uh, from a medium term perspective. Yeah. If you look at the data, the weaker export figures tends to bode not too well for the economy, doesn't it? Because that subtracts from GDP and it suggests mm. over overseas demand from China's for China's exports remains weak. But conversely, if you look at the import figure, that suggests the domestic demand may not be as weak as uh, perhaps first thought um, and, and what we were seeing in the PMI numbers. So which data do you put more weight on? I, I tend to go more with the import data for the exact reason that you stated that it, it's it's much about more a reflection of domestic demand. But again, caveat emptor, buyer beware, because it's also a lot of inventory rebuilding in, in China of stocks that have been so depleted because of the supply side, supply chain disruptions that a lot of these inventories, I'm sure, have to be replenished. I'm, I'm, I think that's probably a very big story going on underneath the surface. I don't think it's private consumption because the people don't really have the jobs with which to consume. Mm. Well, what do you see, see Louisa? What, what should we, in terms of trying to make mm. judgments about yeah. the economy overall, we've got two conflicting forces here, really, haven't we? Exports subtracting, um, but imports suggesting domestic demand is, is better than we thought. Yeah, I think uh, import would definitely be interesting, uh, aside from potentially inventory rebuilding, uh, but I think domestic demand is one of the things to, to, to be uh, watch out for. But I I think it also come with a conflicting uh, PMI data that we had slightly earlier. So I think the key is we think the economic recovery uh, road will be a little bit bumpy. So I think uh, keep going on to watch out for will be um, a series of other activity data. And in addition to that, for 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 us, we we focus more on the real estate uh, or yes, home sales data, yeah, yeah. which uh, we think will have a lot of. Um, uh, indication. The, the good thing about it is, aside from the National Bureau of Statistics, uh, developer, they themselves, or industry, they also give out weekly or, or monthly that kind of uh, new home sales data, mm. which uh, you can have a little bit more insights after that. Uh, so far, uh, despite the easing effort that have been put in place, I think from a new home sales perspective, we haven't seen much um, material or unsustainable uh, changes, maybe 
with a few exceptions for selected tier one cities. And I think this is still one of the key data that I will keep focusing on. Um, and what about the manufacturing sector? We've seen from the PMI data, both from the official National Bureau of Statistics data and also from the Kaishin data, manufacturing has really slipped into contraction, hasn't it? Services holding up, but not doing as well as they were, but it's really manufacturing that's taking a hit. Well, that's why the, the Baltic dry index keeps on st slipping and sliding. And Maersk this, this, um, just announced that it was throwing out 10,000 employees, 10,000, I mean, just imagine that It's number. about 10% of their workforce. It's 10%, yeah. yes. And that is at least indicative, again, of, of how this China being such a big gorilla on the block in terms of trade, how that is slipping um, in terms of the global economic time, which is characterized by an excess demand for money and excess supply of goods increasingly. And Maersk is a good bellwether for global trade, isn't I think it? So. I think so. It's because they're so big and ship yeah, so yeah, much yeah. around the world. Although yeah. the container business, it's very boom and bust, isn't it? Shipping dry goods around the world. They had a real boom time during the pandemic, um, and now it's all gone to bust. It's the same thing with, with China's pork cycle. Um, that you, which again, that's that was the, in this week's FT was leading to deflation in China because the pork prices, the wholesale mm -hmm. prices, have fallen by some forty percent year on year, and that's again because, like in shipping, they all go hell for leather when they decide to build more, grow more pigs, and then all of a sudden they grow too many pigs, build too many ships, and then down it goes again. So it's it's a very much a yo-yo cycle. Mm, it's always over-investing, isn't over -investing, it? As you say, yes, with, with they've yes. ordered too many ships that they've now got to idle and. Um, yeah. to be used yeah um louisa the, the, the government's solution to the problem in the manufacturing sector is to basically borrow more and invest in, in manufacturing and then hope that um you know there's going to be demand around the world for all these increased goods do you think this is the right approach um i i Okay, put it this way. I think the from a manufacturing perspective, I think the way to look at is um, China has been um, engineering a shift or a move up in the quality chain. So when we actually look in into that, I think aside from manufacturing fixed asset investment, uh, to a certain extent, uh, infrastructure fixed asset investment will also have to be uh, focused. It uh, goes hand in hand, in which I think the government has highlighted that um, uh, that would be the so-called new infrastructure investment. Mm. that are probably encompassing some of the new potential growth engines. For instance, like um, the new energy vehicle, which is one of the uh, area or the industry that the government has been supporting and China has been successfully penetrating in some of the export market as well. Secondly, renewable energy, which is also another new infrastructure or potentially some, some manufacturing because uh, in certain subcategories, China has been uh, dominating in the export supply for instance, like solar, etc. So I think um, it's, uh, it's uh, not a near-term uh, fix or, or short-term fix, but probably a medium-term adjustment from the industry upgrade, put it this way. Yeah. But um, the problem is that even if they find invest in, um, you know, productive areas to go and invest in in the manufacturing sector, they're going to get pushback, aren't they, from Europe and the US who just simply don't want to buy uh, more Chinese goods and particularly in the case of the EU, see their trade deficits soar even more. So this is going to run into some problems, isn't it? Well, that's why I think they need to really push private consumption, but they can't do that until they allow the private sector to create the jobs, which is what, they, what they're good at. They create 80% of all employment. And so until the um, party relinquishes some control and allows the private sector really to have freer reign, 
um, the, I think it was the boss of Zhejiang province just said that he wanted Alibaba to kind of toe the line and do what they want yet again. And that's this dirigisme, which I think is also creeping into Hong Kong, frankly. And that's, I think, the root cause of this much slower growth in China. Well, let's talk about Hong Kong, because the Hong Kong Monetary Authority has been hosting its second Global Financial Leaders Investment Summit. The theme this year is Living with Complexity, and there's about 300 executives um, around from big global banks like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, UBS, HSBC, and so on. Um, I suppose, first of all, um, it's good, isn't it, that we can get all these bankers to still come um, to Hong Kong, although it has to be said they're keeping a bit of a low profile, aren't they? They don't want to be give interviews, they don't want to be photographed with anyone because they're worried that they will get criticism uh, from back home. And also, of course, John Lee um, is under sanctions from the US, so they can't do business uh, with him, otherwise um, they could get sanctioned themselves. But nevertheless... And what do, you, what do you make of this conference? We've got all these bankers here uh, coming to Hong Kong. Um, I'll t- we want to talk specifically in a moment about what some of the speakers mm. have said in terms of the Hong Kong and Chinese economy. Um, your thoughts, Enzio, first. Well, I think that the it's, it's fine and good to have these conferences, and it's we're going to have yet another hub here, a green energy hub. I don't know what they call them now. Everything is a hub here, and so I think that it's... It's kind of, it's, it's having these conferences is fine and good, but what's the actual business being done? The, the foreign IPO market in Hong Kong has virtually dried up. There's mm-hmm. still some IPOs going on, but certainly a, a, that's a pale shadow of what it used to down be. Down about three quarters, I think, from is where it down it was. three quarters, yeah. by word. And then, of course, as you say, the these corporate bosses, these corporate titans are all kind of playing hide-and-go-seek with, with the camera teams here. Um, so I don't quite know why they're here, except maybe just to sort of, frankly, see each other a little bit. Free, free <laughs> it would be trip. cheaper if they did that in, in the US then. <laughs> I, I would have thought, yes, yes. But So the question has got to be asked, is, is Hong Kong still an international financial centre or is it a Chinese financial centre now, a, a hub for uh, Chinese companies to, to raise money? Well, I'll take the foreign side, then I want to get Louisa to see about that, because I don't even speak Cantonese. But I, I just think that you cannot be an international financial centre without, and being bilingual myself, without speaking um, English. It just doesn't work. And that doesn't mean just the top boys at the top at the, at the top table, the top lads and ladies, but it also means this, the back office settlements people. And, and that's, that's just not being actively promoted. The, 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 the English is a, is a very important language. We used to have it. It's gone now. And that's going to make it very, very difficult for us to, to regain that status. Once people have moved, they've moved. And I'm mm. afraid that's what's happening. Well, um, Louisa, if John Lee said in his speech, we're Asia's hedge fund hub. We're also the region's second largest private equity centre. Um, so, hub, you're wrong. So do we still have something going for us? Um, I think as a financial centre, I think a couple of things that we that we need to take note. Uh, first of all, in the uh, IPO, as you highlighted, um, uh, alongside with the overall sentiment of the global risky asset market, uh, IPO has more or less been put on hold uh, mm. for a few quarters. And looking at market turnover, I think Hong Kong market year-to-day uh, turnover is 
probably around 105 billion on an average daily basis, which is still somewhat uh, quite significantly lower. So I think first of all, uh, we need to revive that. And I think the uh, cut of the stamp duty is heading to the right yes, direction. Uh, put it this way, if we look at uh, other major exchanges in the world, including the US, um, I think trading costs here in Hong Kong is relatively high. Uh, mm -hmm. Put it this way, stamp duty in one thing. Secondly, the bid arts spread is another thing. So, um, and for some of the institutional investor, especially for those, for instance, like hedge funds and quant funds, uh, where the trading activities is relatively high. And uh, from their perspective, uh, this is a trading cost that they have to bear. So I think we are heading into the right step, but probably we need a little bit more um, from this perspective, at least from my um, trading cost perspective, uh, Hong Kong would be at a competitive level with other leading um, exchanges in, in, in the global market. So you like the stamp duty cut. What about some of the other um, measures John Lee announced in his policy address, like this investor entry program for those who have 30 million Hong Kong dollars or more? They can come to Hong Kong. He wants to encourage firms to re-domicile um, here in Hong Kong. Are they going to have an impact? Um, I, I think it's a whole series of under the bracket of uh, attracting talents and and investor uh, as a as as a broader base. Um, I think uh, in investment uh, program has been in place for some time. Uh, I guess the. The argument is whether this 30 million uh, uh, hurdle rate is uh, probably will need mm. to be adjusted or not. We do see that the government is probably taking a gradual approach, so um, waiting for the impact. And we would like to see more steps follow on to refine and adjust. And I think the other thing to look at is uh, attracting talents from the mainland um, and also reviving the uh, scaling back some of the stamp duties, especially for the property market here in Hong Kong, which is a whole series of package uh, that are aiming to revive it. But more specifically for the real estate market, we still do believe that currently the macro environment that Hong Kong investing into real estate um, is still negative carry. Mm. And we see mm. that this is still one of the major key reasons that is uh, holding on for some of the um, uh, home buyers uh, purchasing decisions. Mm. Yeah. Now, Angie, I've just found that data that I was referring oh. to earlier. In the first nine months of this mm. year, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange saw 47 initial public offerings. Mm. They raised a total of 24.6 billion Hong Kong mm. dollars. That's down 67% wow. from a year ago. And furthermore, here's some more figures for you. Investment banks, they've earned just $539 million in fees in total this year from deals involving companies from China other than currencies in the yuan, so Hong Kong dollars and so on. But that's down from $3.75 billion wow. in 2020. And of course, then if you look at the market, the Hang Seng down 10% this year on track for its fourth consecutive year of declines. And several global investment banks have been reducing their headcount in the greater China region. UBS trimmed about 7% of its global banking units in Asia. Most of that was China-focused roles. JP Morgan uh, cut 30 Asia deal-making jobs, with again Hong Kong and China taking the biggest hits. It's not surprising that it's been a bit gloomy at this investor conference. The overall sentiment hasn't been great, has it? Because there, there are clearly some issues. Well, again, there are, there, there are issues and there are also opportunities. But 
my problem with the local government again is what we're seeing in China. It's this dirigisme. This we think we can we 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 can have a happy Hong Kong. We can have a what was the other one? The the evening stalls in Hong Kong. That's the going night to really markets, night markets. That's going to really revive the economy. I haven't seen sense too much growth. But then again, I don't really go to places like that at night. So. Um, <laughs> But I just think it's this dirigisme which which they're trying, and that's um, and if they were to allow, for instance, fintech has a huge potential worldwide. Look at Shenzhen next door. I went there first in '86. It was a duck pond with two ducks in the middle of it, and that was about it, basically. Mm-hmm. Now it's a huge tech center, bang next door to Hong Kong. Are we any dumber than those people in Shenzhen? I don't think so. It's lost opportunities. It's not no leadership vision seeing that and pushing that, and that's I think the problem with this with our sad sadly here. Well let's talk about some of the opportunities because there were some very positive speakers from the mainland. Chinese Vice Premier Hei Li Feng said Hong Kong has a unique advantage as an international financial centre. He said Hong Kong has always been an important link between our motherland and the rest Mm. of the world. He said the city should further integrate into the nation's development, focus on strengthening its own infrastructure and raise its influence and make good use of its international financial centre role to boost financial connectivity. And he went on to say Hong Kong was a key source of foreign investment for the mainland and served as the preferred channel for Chinese enterprises, overseas investment and financing. So Louisa um, is laying out what he thinks the opportunities are there uh, for Hong Kong. The problem is at the moment um, there's not a lot of appetite, is there, for Chinese enterprises raising overseas investment and financing at the moment. Um, I think speaking from the equities market perspective or, or institutional um, investor funds flow, uh, based on some of the fund funds flow data, um, most of the global funds, especially for the U.S. managed long only funds, uh, they are still underweight Chinese equities, uh, whether onshore or offshore, and the underweight is probably going <coughs> back to where it was uh, that when we saw um, the low uh, as of last year. So I think uh, the key to to revive the fund flow is a few things. Uh, first of all, growth is definitely one of the things. Um, aside from like the GDP growth or corporate earnings growth that we talked about, I think the other thing that institutional investor will focus on is the returns on equities. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, um, Chinese uh, companies, or if you look at the broader market, ROE perspective, uh, we at the beginning of the year, we would hope that it will be reviving or, or picking up on the back of improving corporate earnings, but um, that has actually uh, proved to be a, a false start. Um, so earnings recovery comes in um, slower than, uh, takes longer than expected. So from a whole Asia ex Japan or whole Asia Pacific perspective, the ROE uh, versus some other emerging market, for instance, uh, one of the closest uh, that has been India is one of the countries that has been closely mentioned alongside mm. with China uh, when talking about it. The ROE is significantly higher, and that's also proven that supporting the relatively higher valuation parameters. So I think from a medium to medium term perspective, I think it still goes back to the fundamentals, uh, the corporate earnings, the return on equity. These are still the key fundamentals things that will draw or attract the foreign funds back um, to China. Yeah.
Angela, let me ask you something that um, the People's Bank of China's Deputy Governor Zhang Qingxiong said at the conference yesterday. Uh, he was really talking up the mainland economy. He said he wasn't worried about the mainland economy because the debt risks will recede. He said the property market has long-term uh, potential. He said from a long-term perspective, the fundamentals of the Chinese economy remain stable and promising. He said China's local government debt is a structural issue and the risks to certain regions is going to recede gradually. He said while some provinces may face pressure servicing their obligations, most of their borrowing is backed by physical assets. And he said the country aims to anyway build a long-term mechanism to solve those problems. He called the difficulties facing the housing sector um, natural selection and a market clearing process. He said supply and demand is just simply shifting from years of rapid growth in the industry. And he said the nation's got a trans- transition from the old growth model driven by property and infrastructure to innovative green developments. What do you make of that? Well, these are great Things that, that there was a song called Paroles, and I think it's a Spanish song actually, and I think it's 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 quite apt in this phrase in in this context that of course he's going to say something positive. He has to do that. That that's just that's totally legitimate. Um, I'm afraid though that you have a the, the cyclical the economic time in China is just bad. It's excess supply of goods. Hong Kong excess supply of goods. America getting to excess supply of goods. The global economic time is worsening with the excess with the changing tightening of money. The excess mm-hmm. demand for money. So until that cyclical stuff goes, a lot of heartache is going to go on. But then also you've got the structural issues going on, like in China with the the centralization of power telling this private sector what to do. And so until these things get resolved in some way or the other, um, I don't think you're going to get a lot more on the growth front, frankly. I hate to say that, but that's that's how I sort of see it. It's interesting that he called the difficulties facing the housing sector, he called it natural selection and a market clearing process. The, the only thing is, though, is it really a market clearing process? Because there's so many restrictions on the prices that developers uh, can sell uh, properties at. It's not really a market clearing process, is it, where we find out what is the real price of all this excess property that's on, on the market? It should probably be much lower than it is, I would have thought. Yeah, I, I would have thought and, so and as well. So, and so um, again, it's not, allowing the, it's not allowing the private sector, what Deng did so fabulously, um, Deng Xiaoping, obviously, what he did, so, which is to let the private sector really just take care of these things and, and because they know where the demand is and where the, where the supply is. They could balance it out. Now, Louisa, the, uh, the markets came up in the conference as well. Uh, yesterday, Hong Kong, uh, the Hang Seng Index, it fell 1.7%. Uh, year to date, uh, it's down um, around 10%. The CSI 300 is down about 6% this year. Wang Xingzhong, Vice Chair of the China Securities Regulatory Commission, a market watchdog, this is what he said. He said the domestic debt and equity markets were full of opportunities right now. And speaking at the conference, he said it's never too late to catch the China train. You can still ride the dragon to heaven. What do you say? Um, put it this way, let's take a step back. I think one of the key driving forces for the rebound, uh, not just for Chinese equities, but if you look at across asset class, is uh, starting from last week, we probably see a pullback of the US 10-year Treasury from at one point, it was more slightly more than 5%, to recently, uh, at one point, it was as low as around 4.5 something mm. percent. So mm. we're talking about something 40 basis point, that sort of pullback. 
um, that is significant, and I think this will actually support uh, some rebound across the asset class. So, looking just beyond Chinese equities market, and there will be other asset class, for instance, like the U.S. equities, um, that also perform along this way. So, I think this is still one of the key driving force uh, for this because this is important, especially for some of the uh, high growth tech stock, which uh, this is probably used as the risk-free discount rate. Mm. So that is a key for valuation. So I think this is uh, setting up one of the positive backdrop. And I think alongside with the mid-year physical budget expansion, that also took markets uh, by surprises. And I think the next key thing to watch is we are uh, getting close to the reporting seasons within Chinese equities market. I think the internet uh, industry, uh, whether you like it or not, they still account for close to one third mm. of the index weight, and it is not something that you can ignore. And in the previous one or two or few quarters, they, especially for the leaders, they have been dis- displaying that they have strong cost discipline, margin holding up, uh, top line growth, uh, selective players surprise the market on that. And I think this is one of the key things to focus on because amid of the challenging macro environment if we have been talking about, they still be able to deliver uh, such uh, uh, results. And I think this probably will be something to watch out for. And some of them are at net cash position. So what it means is if you look at the X cash PE multiples. Uh, they some of the key leading players uh, will be trading at probably mid to high single digit PE. So yeah. on that China US yield gap that you, you say we should watch, I mean that's been at extremes, hasn't it? I think it's been at a record um, high. You're saying you think that's going to start to uh, to normalise, and it might normalise because yields in the US are actually starting to come down now, aren't they? Off their uh, off their oh. peaks, so that's going to presumably support the yuan. I'm not, I'm going to have to differ. Um, I think that actually with the increased debt issuance, especially in America, the obviously if you increase the supply, the price goes down, the yield goes up, we all kind of figured that one out Mm. a few decades ago. So um, I'm afraid that the US rates are going to go up. I'm seeing a stronger yen. I'm seeing a weaker renminbi because there will be continued lack of foreign interest going into China, more capital outflow than inflow. So I'll have to just, we'll have to just agree to differ. Mm. It it seems, Louisa, to me that the People's Bank of China is effectively... linked the uh, the yuan to the US dollar. I mean, it's, it's basically pegged to the US dollar at um, the, the fixing rate, which hasn't changed for, for weeks, isn't it? They, they've just taken all the volatility out of the currency. Uh, yes, I think um, if you look at the US and China yield spread as of now, it's more or less kind of stabilized at around 200 basis point. Mm-hmm. And I think the key from now on is probably stabilization. Uh, that that will be the key. Um, for instance, uh, even though uh, our house will expect like um, t- ten years U.S. yield or Fed funds raise probably we've seen the peak. But then I think for chi- from the China side perspective, uh, with the one trillion uh, CGB issuance, the next step that to make this policy more effective is to a certain extent we need to see some kind of policy rate cuts, and the question is by by how much. So uh, stabilization 
normalization of the U.S. China bond yield gap at the current level will, will be will be important, right? Mm. Mm. And if it got worse, then that's not going to be good for Chinese equities. It, it, it will be putting pressure on the currency, and uh, to a certain extent, it will make the Chinese risky asset uh, from a macro mm. perspective, top-down perspective, uh, will be. Um, relatively uh, less attractive from this perspective. And what about earnings? About one third of companies, Chinese companies, have reported uh, third quarter results that fell short um, of expectations. I think that's the most in about five years now. What, what, what do you see from the earnings side? I think from the earnings side, uh, probably we have been expecting earnings um, uh, adjustment down because of the if you look at the whole year, we don't really have a much more coordinated or stepping up in terms of the policy easing, whether it's from physical and all, all the so on and so forth. That probably comes towards the end of August or beginning of September. So from this perspective, we don't see at a broad or aggregate level um, sort of surprises for the free queue earnings. Uh, even with all these measures put in place, we do see that it will take time to work into the system. So I think it's probably for us, it is more important to look for the guidance um, for 2024 going forward. And again, I stress again, um, uh, new home sales data was probably still one of the key um, high frequency data to watch out for, uh, because we talk about domestic consumption. I think uh, property sector will also have a wealth impact uh, from this perspective. Okay, well, thank you both very much for your thoughts there. You heard there uh, Louisa Fock, China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore, and Ron Fall, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. I'm joined now by Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Morning, William. Good morning, Peter. Now, we had some data out yesterday on uh, wages. Average cash earnings in Japan increased by 1.2% year-on-year in September, up from 0.8% in August. 21th consecutive month of increases in wages, which I guess the Bank of Japan will be pleased about. But a uh, big caveat here, wage growth is still lagging inflation, isn't it? Uh, inflation, core inflation, 2.8%. So uh, the poor old consumer is still seeing um, real wages go down. It's true. I mean, it's um, it's sort of you know one step forward and uh, a step and a half or two steps back in terms of where Japan wants to be in 2023. I mean, it, it is great as you mentioned that wages are rising, and we have seen um, 21 consecutive months of increasing wages, which is exactly what you what Japan wants to be seeing at the moment. But as you as you point out, inflation is accelerating and outpacing wage increases. And you know, in your morning newsletter, you also point out that household spending remains weak as a result. And that's really the disconnect that we're seeing is that, mm. you know, wages are rising and that's great. Inflation's rising faster. And I think a lot of Japanese are looking at the fact that the yen is about 150 to the US dollar right now and probably going weaker in the months ahead. And they're worried about importing even more inflation uh, as the months progress. So it's not a great situation in terms of uh, mass household uh, psychology or investor psychology at the moment. And of course, the Bank of Japan is very focused on this, isn't it? Isn't it? They want to see real wages um, increase, and, um, and when they do, that makes it more likely they're going to get out of uh, this ultra easy monetary policy they're in at the moment. 
Yes, exactly. But I do think the most boring job for a journalist in Japan right now is Bank of Japan reporter, right? Because the BOJ has has been saying a lot this year, doing very little. I mean, they've they've done the you know they've done the bare minimum in terms of tweaks. But you know, for anyone expecting a big change in BOJ policy in the next six to twelve months, I'm not sure we're going to see one. And one of the other problems too is you do see Prime Minister Kishida whose approval ratings are about 28%, which is making Joe Biden look popular at the moment, he's ramping up fiscal stimulus to help boost the economy. And in many ways, that complicates the BOJ's job, because if you want to taper, if you want to normalize interest rates in any way, any increase in Japanese bond yields at a moment when the government is ramping up spending is going to be a problem. And Mm -hmm. so for the BOJ, it's going to be a very, very fascinating six to 12 months ahead. And when you look at the minutes of their meeting, which they came out yesterday, I was slightly amused by them because they were basically saying we're going to continue monetary easing. Now, this was the meeting um, of of September, except when it came to the October meeting, that's exactly what they didn't do because they then went and adjusted adjusted their yield curve control. So having said in the previous meeting, uh, you know, we're just going to carry on doing exactly what we're doing. uh, They then went and did something different uh, the next meeting and leaked it to the Nikkei beforehand about what they were going to do. You're right. It is very confusing. Um, and, and the fact that these decisions are being leaked to the media doesn't help the, the BOJ's credibility. But I think what the BOJ is doing is it's the BOJ is in, in general is an autopilot. But they do realize that they have to essentially take small steps here and there to remind people that they're on the job, that, that the cop is still walking the beat, if you will. But I really do look at what the BOJ is doing as basically desperation moves to adjust BOJ policies because U.S. bond yields continue to rise. And the more the gap widens between Japan and the U.S., the more Japan runs into technical problems with the money markets here. So you do see the BOJ doing the bare minimum, but the overall easing, the overall, you know, quantitative easing that Japan's been doing for 23 years now, none of that has changed in any way in the last Mm -hmm. six months. And I think what's interesting is, um, you know, uh, Governor Oeda has been around since April, and people had very big expectations about him pivoting in a different direction, and that's not happening. And I think that 2024 is going to be his his real uh, sort of test year if you will, to see if uh, if he can actually move the BOJ in a different direction. And I think anyone who tells you very clearly and very confidently what BOJ policy will be in the next 12 months, run away fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, the BOJ doesn't know itself, does it? And it does seem to have exactly. a bit of a communication problem, doesn't it, in trying to communicate to the wider world what it is it's trying to do? No, very true. And I think, you know, we, we in the media... We're doing our best to, you know, sort of kick the tires and figure out what's going on and to translate to a fascinated world what the BOJ is up to. And I think the BOJ, as you mentioned, doesn't even know themselves. And I think, you know, one of the problems the BOJ is having right now is a lot of their policies are being decided in Washington. The Fed is on hold at the moment, but, you know, there's a fairly high probability the Fed will pull off one more rate hike in the next few months as, as, as inflation rises a bit and as high oil prices feedback on the U.S. And so until the BOJ knows where the U.S. is heading in terms of rates, there's not a lot they want to be doing in terms of making big decisions. Mm. And we had uh, Governor Michelle Bowman, Fed uh, Governor Michelle Bowman, saying that, uh, you know, she thought there was going to be further rate hikes. So all this, the markets have got very euphoric. They seem to be pretty well decided that it's the end of the rate hiking cycle in the U.S. and also in Europe um, as well. Um, but it, when you read through the comments that, you know, people uh, like Michelle Bowman and like Jerome Powell are saying, they're, they're saying no such thing. They're not taking this off the table at all, but the markets seem to be ignoring it. 
Well, there is a lot of concern that this this, this Israel-Hamas crisis is going to increase uh, oil prices further. There could be you know, further tensions uh, with, you know, around the Middle East, and that certainly will feed back Asia's way and, and the U.S.'s way, and that's something that the Fed is very focused on. But I think also you have rising wage pressures in the U.S., and if you're at the Federal Reserve, I think, you know, in many ways the Fed is playing catch-up, right? I mean, the Fed was very slow to realize in 2021 that inflation was rising. They played catch-up catch in 2022 and early 2023, and so they're trying to maintain or rebuild their credibility. Mm. But I think in many ways, again, the year ahead is going to be fascinating in terms of central bank policy. You know, if you're looking at Australia, um, we do see moves there that suggest that, uh, you know, that the RBA is often a, an interesting bellwether for the global financial system. They're tightening. So it should be interesting. Mm, and we've got, but we've got elsewhere, we've got some of the emerging markets actually cutting rates um, now. I think Brazil, Poland, you know, so, and they're often sort of a, a leading indicator as well, aren't they? So um, it, it's, yeah, as you say, it's really all over the place in terms of what central banks are, are doing right now. It is. And I think, you know, where Japan's concerned, there's a lot of concern about China as well, right? I mean, I wrote something recently. The headline was, you know, Japan's next recession is being made and being caused in China. Um, and I do think, you know, Japan is looking at its biggest trading partner, the biggest, by far the biggest economy in its neighborhood, and it's realizing that the outlook is not terribly good in terms of where China is heading. And so, again, you, you do hear the BOJ, like Governor Oeda, talking more about China um, than, say, Governor Kuroda, his predecessor, did. So there is a lot of concern that as China's downshift, uh, you know, sort of deepens in the year ahead, it will feed back on Japan in very big ways. And so the BOJ is, I think, just think the BOJ is very much on hold. Mm. Is, is Japan benefiting from what, what we're seeing that China seems to be softening its approach uh, to, to neighboring countries? We saw that with Australia, Anthony Albanese um, in, in Beijing um, earlier in the week and President Xi Jinping saying, you know, relations are on, on a more normal track now. Um, he's going to the apex summit, it looks like, and he's going to meet with directly with a lot of U.S. business leaders there. So he seems to be softening his approach a bit to the U.S. as well and seems to be more open to listening directly to the concerns of businesses. Any sign of, uh, you know, a softening in approach to Japan? Well, I mean, that's certainly Japan, something that Japan is very happy to see. And certainly you have, you have Janet Yellen um, in the days ahead meeting with her Chinese counterpart. And these are all steps in the right direction. I mean, I think that for Prime Minister Kishida, um, who is really cozied up, cozied up to the U.S. in very interesting ways, also to South Korea and the Philippines, any kind of detente, if you will, between the U.S. and China is a, is a terrific development, um, you know, for, for Japan. But I think also Kajita is very cognizant that the upcoming U.S. election um, is probably going to complicate that, that, um, that process, if you will, because the one thing that Democrats and Republicans in Washington agree on is being hard on China. And so it'll be interesting to see if uh, President Biden's team can maintain that, uh, you know, that olive branch moment, if you will. And of course, you say we've got the uh, the U.S. election next year. Donald Trump is ahead in the polls. Um, I presume if he wins a second term, everything is up in the air again. Yeah, I haven't slept in days since that New York Times <laughs> poll. Um, yeah, it's a very scary specter. And if you know, if you're China, if you're Russia, if you're North Korea, you can argue that you want Trump to come back because any chaos in Washington in the U.S. is is good for China, good for mm. Russia, good for North Korea, good for good for Hungary. And so that's going to be a wild card hanging over the global financial system in the year ahead. And, and, and again, um, 
I think it's probably the, the, the worst thing you could imagine for Asia to see Trump return to the White House, certainly for Japan. Mm. And we've got the APEX summit coming up next week. Um, it's thought that President Xi Jinping will go, although he hasn't confirmed uh, for sure that he's going to be there. But nevertheless, uh, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is going to be there as well. What can we expect from this summit? Well, I mean, this is a, this is one of those rare summits that I think will get a lot of attention because there are a lot of moving parts in the global financial system. And, you know, any, you know, any senior presence uh, by, you know, by Chinese officials, uh, in San Francisco, um, any conversations between them with Janet Yellen and Joe Biden will get a lot of attention. And I, I think this is one of those rare moments where um, global finance ministers, global central bankers are and leaders are genuinely trying to figure out where the global economy is heading in the year ahead and what cooperation can actually take place. And I'm, I'm actually more optimistic you will see something of a communique coming out of this event, which suggests, uh, you know, a bit of a we are the world moment in terms of the global economy and inflation. I could be, you know, I could, I could uh, regret saying this in a week, but um, I do think that we could see a lot more cooperation at this event than we than we might have seen, say, in the past. Oh, well, we're going to talk with you about this then after it's over. Let's see what they, uh, whether it's just a talking shop or whether they do come up with some concrete uh, proposals. It's, as you say, it's going to be an interesting summit. Thank you very much, William. It is. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author, William Pesic. Thanks, Peter. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Alex Froome McMillan, a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.